In this type of game, we're always trying to make a 3D miniature realm. Shigeru Miyamoto. This is Legendary Adventures Podcast. This week, we're going to take a look at the world and legacy of the fifth game in the series, Ocarina of Time. We traveled across Hyrule both in the past and the future to tackle nine dungeons and defeat Ganon. This time the kingdom is larger than we've ever seen before, and it's presented for the first time in full 3D. Due to technical limitations, the world is divided into a number of clear sections with obvious seams. The largest section is right in the center. It's Hyrule Field. This is a large, wide-open field which serves as a sort of hub to access all other locations. Some of the smaller areas contain shortcuts which allow players to reach other parts of the map quickly, but this is the only area which provides access to all areas of the map. There are seven smaller areas which branch off of Hyrule Field. Each is further divided into several smaller sections. We start in Kokiri Forest, which also contains the Lost Woods and the Sacred Forest Meadow, and two dungeons, the Great Deku Tree and the Forest Temple. The entrance to this area is on the southeastern part of Hyrule Field. The Lost Wood contains two shortcuts, both to Goron City and to Zora's River. Players won't be able to use either of these shortcuts without the proper equipment, however. Bombs or bomb flowers are needed to open the Goron City shortcut, while players will need the Silver Scale to access the shortcut to Zora's River. The river can be accessed from Hyrule Field through an entrance immediately north of Kokiri Forest. This also contains Zora's Domain and Zora's Fountain. This area is blocked by large boulders and can't be entered until players acquire the bombs from Dodongo's Cavern. The shortcut in the Lost Woods is found just outside Zora's Domain next to the Sleepless Waterfall. Inside Zora's Domain, players will find a shortcut to Lake Hylia, but players will need the Silver Scale to access it. There is one dungeon here, Jabu Jabu's Belly, and one mini-dungeon, the Ice Cavern. To the north of the river is Kakariko Village and Death Mountain. The village is subdivided into two parts, the village proper and the graveyard on the western edge of the village. One dungeon and one mini-dungeon are contained within the village, the bottom of the well and the shadow temple. Death Mountain is to the north of the village. It's blocked off until players acquire a note from Princess Zelda. Death Mountain contains two dungeons, Dodongo's Cavern and the Fire Temple, and Goron City. A shortcut to the Lost Woods can be opened inside of Goron City. On the north of Hyrule Field is Castletown. It's offset slightly from the center and sits northeast on the map. In the past, Castletown is a lively place full of shops and minigames. To the north of Castletown is Hyrule Castle and its surrounding grounds. In the future, Castletown is a ruin inhabited by redead enemies, with Ganon's castle to the north. In both timelines, the Temple of Time sits to the east of Castletown proper. These locations serve as the ultimate goal of each act of the game. The Temple of Time is the goal for the first act, while Ganon's castle is the goal for the second. Their position on the northern end of the map is similar to how the egg was placed on the far north end of the map in Link's Awakening. In the center of the map is Lon Lon Ranch. This is an entirely optional location which hides a number of goodies and most importantly Link's horse. A large corral sits on the northern end of the ranch. It holds all of Ocarina of Time's horses, including Link's horse Epona. To the northwest is Gerudo Desert. This area is separated into Gerudo Valley, Gerudo Fortress, the Haunted Wasteland, and the Desert Colossus. This is perhaps the most isolated section of the map. There's no shortcut located within the world. It does, however, connect to Lake Hylia. Players are able to ride the river in the valley down to the lake. Players will also need either Epona or the Longshot to travel to Gerudo Fortress and the areas beyond it. Most players will need the Lens of Truth to navigate the wasteland to reach the Colossus. It contains one dungeon, the Spirit Temple, and two mini-dungeons. 
To the south and west lies the final area, Lake Hylia. This is home to the Lakeside Laboratory, the Fishing Hole, and Water Temple. There is a shortcut to Zora's Domain which can only be reached with the Silver Scale. The Water Temple requires the Iron Boots to navigate. The Fishing Hole is an entirely optional area. Its inclusion here is a nod to Link's Awakening, though the fishing here is more complex. I personally have never spent much time fishing in Ocarina of Time, but there are many players who have sunk hours into it. Fishing was introduced to the series with Link's Awakening, but I suspect that Ocarina of Time cemented the strong connection in Zelda fans' minds between the series and fishing. While each sub-area is full of activity with villages, non-player characters, dungeons, games, secrets, and more, Hyrule Field itself is quite empty in comparison. It features eight secret grottos which are generally found by using bombs or the Megaton Hammer. Each one is located near the outer edges of the map. There's only one NPC to find on Hyrule Field, the Running Man. He's found there only in the past and only after all three spiritual stones have been collected. There are few enemies in Hyrule Field as well. In the past, players can fight P-Hats, envisioned here as giant enemies which can send smaller baby P-Hats at Link. These enemies are primarily found on the outer edges of the map and are only active during the day. If I'm honest, it's pretty easy to avoid encounters with them. Players will primarily face them when hunting for secret grottos. Once night falls, players will encounter stall children enemies. These are skeleton enemies that rise from the ground. They appear two at a time and are easily defeated. In the future, the P-Hats and the stall children are gone. The only enemies found in Hyrule Field are Poes. There are 10 giant Poes found in fixed locations all over the map. However, they don't really fight, they just flee. Players must quickly kill them in order to net a bottle once all 10 are defeated. I came across only a single small Poe in Hyrule Field during this playthrough. I destroyed a boulder and a small Poe appeared. Hyrule Field is largely empty, even more so in the future. That, however, is by design. In a 1998 interview translated on Glitterberry's game translations, Aegeonoma said the trees were removed in order to make writing feel good to the player. He said, In the beginning we put in so many trees, but they were becoming obstacles so we gradually removed them and in the end the wilderness disappeared. It feels good to grow up and ride a horse through the wide world that you've discovered as a child. Field designer Makoto Miyanaga backs up Onuma. He says, Miyamoto directed us to decrease the obstacles in order to make writing more fun. However, decreasing all the obstacles actually caused more difficulty. For a long time, Hyrule Field had nothing. It was terribly uninteresting. And this next bit is interesting. He said they considered adding weather effects to Hyrule Field to make it a more interesting space. Of course, while you were trudging along in that wide, empty plain, we had planned to introduce effects such as wind, temperature, and atmosphere. If we had only presented that sort of game, I don't think it would have been appreciated. We had intended for it to add to the game's character. When I first read that, I immediately thought of Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. Those games, of course, feature areas where players must change their equipment or use potions to manage extreme changes in temperature. I'm not really sure that would have been the case here, though, however. First, there are areas such as Death Mountain Crater which are intensely hot and require Link to change his equipment to avoid taking damage. Second, there are some weather effects that did make it into the game, such as the rain triggered by the Song of Storms. And while the song can be used to trigger specific events or to reveal things, once played, the storms themselves really have no impact on the gameplay world. I can't say for sure, but the more that I think about it, the more that I think these added effects likely would have been primarily visual, with no real impact on the gameplay, just there to build atmosphere. I think this quote from a 1997 interview with Shigeru Miyamoto helps back up my thinking. He said, you will feel or even smell the air and how warm or cold it is in the Zelda world. 
these effects were ultimately not implemented, it's not clear why and we don't really know what they would have been. In a 1998 interview, Onoma further explained how the relatively low number of enemies in Hyrule Field is due to time constraints and the technical limitations of the Nintendo 64. He said, The map design nearly made me cry. Just make it big, we were told. He laughed as he said that. We created a variety of systems and we did what we could in the amount of time that we had, but there was no way we could have implemented enemies as well. He went on to describe the difficulties of creating enemies in a 3D space without negatively impacting performance. He said, When the program checked the terrain's topography to determine how the enemy's feet should walk, it slowed down. When we were trying to figure out how to make enemies appear on the map, we were mostly forced to stick with floating monsters. However, ghosts are really the only characters that float. That made it a little bit odd. Even when considering the problems like when the enemy should appear, sorting out the enemy's relationship to the terrain was extremely difficult. Because of that type of terrain, we were slow in figuring out how to do it, and it tortured us to the very end. The size of the world of Ocarina of Time is impressive for the time of its release. I've mentioned how the scale actually didn't leave much of an impression on me when I very first played the game. But over the years I have come to stop and to consider the scale of the world of Ocarina of Time. And I agree that it's impressive for the time of its release. The designers themselves were excited by the scale that they achieved. In that interview on Glitterberry's game translations, Zelda co-creator Takashi Tezuka said, At first we had planned to make the game on a smaller scale but when we finished we realized how much larger it was than we expected. It's difficult to develop a game that big. We were thinking, wow, it's actually huge. The actual size is about as big as Hirakata. Well, maybe not that big, to be honest. But even if the field is small, there are lots of things that you have to do. Hirakata is a city in northwestern Osaka, Japan. According to Wikipedia, it spans a little more than 25 square miles, or more than 65 square kilometers if you're metrically minded. Script director Toro Osawa felt it was even larger, saying, It's at least as big as Kyoto. Kyoto is home to Nintendo's headquarters, and it is a frequent reference for its game designers. It spans more than 319 square miles, or more than 827 square kilometers. Osawa went on to compare areas within Ocarina of Time's Hyrule to major landmarks in Kyoto. He said, Hyrule Field is around the Imperial Palace. Death Mountain is like Mount Hai, or Mount Kurama. It feels like you can point and say, Hey, I see that over there. It's Ryozen, but if you think about it that way, then Kyoto only has about 200 people. Not a lot, he laughed. The comparison to Kyoto stands out to me because in recent years, Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom director, Hidemaru Fujibayashi, has used Kyoto as a reference point in Hyrule for those games. In 2017, he told The Verge that the comparison was used extensively in development. He said he used landmarks in Kyoto to convey travel times on the map of Hyrule Field to team members. When we were talking to staff and saying, for example, the distance from this point next to the tower is just like the distance from these points in Kyoto, it made the conversation go a lot smoother and faster. Considering how much larger the map and world of Breath of the Wild is compared to Ocarina of Time, perhaps Tezuka's earlier comparison to Hirakata is the more accurate of the two. The areas branching off of Hyrule Field are generally denser, featuring many non-player characters, secrets, minigames, and enemies. They all feel much more present due to the compact nature of these smaller branches. The world map is also heavily weighted towards the east side. The most important and most visited locations are all on the east. Castletown and its associated castles, Kakariko Village, Death Mountain, Zora's River, and Kokiri Forest. These locations are all visited during the game's first act as Young Link, and players will return there later as Adult Link. Areas in the center or the western edge of the map can be visited as Young Link, but with the exception of Lake Hylia, it's really not required. The western locations require tools which can only be obtained by Adult Link to truly and fully explore them. 
The two timelines each present a different version of Hyrule. But for the most part, these differences are less dramatic than the changes seen in A Link to the Past between its light world and its dark world. That world featured much more dramatic changes to navigation and layout. Here, in Ocarina of Time, Castletown is ruined and it becomes lifeless in the future. Kakariko Village gains one building, and others are converted into shops. Zora's domain is frozen over, blocking the shortcut to Lake Hylia and preventing swimming and opening the entrance to the ice cavern. Other areas aren't much different, or at the very least their changes don't last. For example, Goron City is largely empty when visiting the first time as Adult Link, but it's populated again after completing the temple, making the area feel as though no real change has happened. Similar things happen with Kokiri Forest and Lake Hylia. Enemies appear in Kokiri Forest until the Forest Temple is completed, then they disappear and the Kokiri go about their business as normal. The water level in Lake Hylia is significantly reduced, with the water returning to normal after the dungeon is complete. This, I believe, is a big part of the reason why the future map feels less distinct from the past than the Dark World does from the Light World. There are fast travel points scattered around the map, but the series has yet to fully unify the fast travel concept into a single straightforward mechanic. Six of the fast travel points are found at or near the entrances to dungeons that players will tackle as Dalt Link. Each has its own distinct melody that must be played in order to fast travel. The melodies can only be learned by Adult Link, and I felt the location of many of these points was too far away from other points of interest to truly be useful. The Prelude of Light which takes players to the Temple of Time and the Serenade of Water got the most use from me. A second fast travel system is present, but only in the past and only in two locations to my knowledge. The Owl can be found atop Death Mountain and will fly Link back to Kakariko Village. It can also be found at Lake Hylia and will fly Link back to the entrance of Castletown. Ocarina of Time is of course the first game in the series to be presented in 3D, and it appears the developers put a lot of time and effort into showcasing that, and making a truly functional difference. We can see this in the vertical design of Kakariko Village, Death Mountain, Goron City, Zora's River, and Zora's Domain. Each of these areas are strongly built around the concept of verticality. Others like Kokiri Forest and the Castle Grounds in the past, Gerudo Valley, and Hyrule Field are not strictly designed as vertical spaces, but do feature a number of changes in elevation to further emphasize that 3D design. The world of Ocarina of Time in many ways feels most like a real place than any game in the series to this point. The natural rise and fall of the ground, the 3D space, and the more fully realized dwellings all add to this feeling. The world is solid, but in my opinion it's not great due to the sheer amount of just dead, empty space. It's clear the developers did the best they could with what they had, but I personally prefer playing through the worlds of Link's Awakening and A Link to the Past compared to Ocarina of Time. Those worlds to me feel denser, and I don't feel like they have a lot of wasted space. Despite any small quibbles I may have with the world, Ocarina of Time does give off a sense of wonder and magic. There is a reason why this game just absolutely drew me in when I played it as a kid. And I, of course, wasn't the only one. Ocarina of Time became the best-selling game in the Zelda series at that point, and it continues to be one of the most influential. According to a 2018 article by Victor Luckerson on The Ringer, Ocarina of Time has topped at least 20 rankings of the best video games ever. The love for the game has clearly led to it directly inspiring other games. To be clear, Ocarina of Time did not invent many of the things that it gets credited with. For example, it's not uncommon to hear people claim that Ocarina of Time invented the concept of context-sensitive buttons. This isn't true. I couldn't find the very first game to include them, but the idea of buttons performing different actions based on the context of where they're pressed has been around since at least the 1980s. It also isn't the first Zelda game to feature context-sensitive buttons. That started with Zelda 2, where the B button was used to attack, speak, read, and pick up objects. 
What Ocarina of Time did do was call attention to what the action button would do in a given context. Included right in the heads-up display is an icon, which shows which action the button will perform. It essentially removed any possible guesswork from player actions by clearly letting them know what their action would be, or what would be performed with the press of the action button. Was Ocarina of Time the first game to do this? I don't know. But it seems to be accepted as such. It clearly popularized the idea, which was adopted and reworked by other developers. In modern games, the button prompts generally appear as on-screen text next to a character or object that they will be applied to. While the Zelda series long held on to the idea of keeping the prompts in the HUD, it did eventually follow suit as seen in modern games like Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. I've also discussed the game's Z-targeting system. It was not the first targeting system, but I would argue that it was done better than any other game on the market at the time. I've mentioned Mega Man Legends as a title that beat Ocarina of Time to market with a similar concept. But it's real clunky compared to Ocarina of Time's solution. And its follow-up, Mega Man Legends 2, re-envisioned its targeting system in a way that was clearly inspired by Z-targeting. Many other games would also adopt targeting systems clearly inspired by Z-targeting. Fandom.com lists games like For Honor, Dark Souls, and The Witcher 3 as titles which rely on targeting systems directly inspired by Ocarina of Time's Z-targeting. According to ScreenRant.com, other titles inspired by Ocarina of Time include Dark Cloud, Demon's Souls, and Shadow of the Colossus. Perhaps the biggest game series to take inspiration from Zelda, however, is Grand Theft Auto. In a 2001 interview, Rockstar co-founder Sam Hauser described Grand Theft Auto 3 as like a cross between a gangster movie and an RPG, Zelda meets Goodfellas. In 2012, while speaking about the release of Grand Theft Auto 5 with the New York Times, Rockstar's other co-founder, Dan Hauser, said, Anyone who makes 3D games and says that they've not borrowed something from Mario or Zelda is lying. He then clarified, from the games on Nintendo 64. Nintendo has recognized the broad popularity and influence of Ocarina of Time. It's been released on most Nintendo consoles following the Nintendo 64. There were two GameCube releases on promotional discs. It was released on Wii and Wii U Virtual Console, received a remake on 3DS, and is currently on Nintendo Switch Online Plus Expansion Pack with a subscription. Ocarina of Time also cast a long shadow over the Zelda games that followed it, especially the 3D titles. Z-targeting would be refined as the years went on with tweaks made to the combat system, but the core concept of the combat centered on this lock-on mechanic remains today. The combat system would also be adjusted as time went on, the one-on-one -on -one combat's not really a thing anymore, but many of the core concepts of combat within a 3D Zelda title, such as the jump attack, were established here and are still used today. And obviously any Zelda title that features horseback riding or first-person aiming, or 3D space in general, owes something to Ocarina of Time. Navi 2 would go on to be a major influence for most future games in the series. Navi set the template for the game's companion characters. I've outlined what I feel like is an evolution of the companion characters like Navi. It starts with Sahasrila and Zelda in A Link to the Past, and the hint tiles that they spoke to Link through. The Owl in Link's Awakening was the next evolution of that. But Navi, as a companion who travels along with Link and can provide hints at any time, is fully realized for the first time. These characters are a mildly controversial element of the series. Some are beloved, some are hated. Navi is among the most disliked companions in the series, and I expect this mostly comes down to the voice samples used for her notifications. Hey, listen! Shigeru Miyamoto himself was not entirely sold on Navi. In a 1998 interview translated on Shmopulations, Miyamoto said, Speaking plainly, I can now confess to you, I think the whole system with Navi giving you advice is the biggest weak point of Ocarina of Time. He went on to say that it's difficult to craft a hint system that is perfectly tailored to the player's situation. He said they ended up not even trying. 
I know it makes it sound bad, but we purposely left her at kind of a stupid level. I think if we had tried to make Navi's hints more sophisticated, that stupidity would have stood out even more. The truth is, I wanted to remove the entire system, but that would have been even more unfriendly to players. You can think of Navi as being there for the players who stop playing for a month or so, who then pick the game back up and want to remember what they were supposed to do. Companions will become a regular part of the series following Ocarina of Time, with most titles featuring some sort of companion character. With Ocarina of Time, we can also see the concept of a Zelda dungeon fully set in place. These are the most distinctive dungeons yet, both visually and in terms of gameplay. Each dungeon has unique elements. I've outlined in past seasons how with each game the dungeons became more themed and distinct from one another. Link's Awakening was the first game to fully realize the dungeon style that I think is most associated with the series. Its dungeons were visually distinct, featured a map, a compass, a boss key, and an item in most cases that was required to complete the dungeon and defeat the boss. In designing the dungeons for Ocarina of Time, Eiji Onuma intentionally followed the Link's Awakening template. Speaking to Edge Magazine in 2019, he said, I always had the vision of the dungeon and gameplay from Link's Awakening. I never told anybody specifically, but I always had that in the back of my mind, and I tried to convert the feeling that I got from Link's Awakening into a 3D world. In terms of story elements and world building, Ocarina of Time introduces new races to the series such as the Gorons, Gerudo, and Kokiri, which will continue on in some form or another in subsequent games. It also features the first appearance of the Great Deku Tree, which becomes a recurring character. And it featured a radical redesign of the Zora, which went on to become the template that many future games would use for this classic Zelda race. The concept of a friendly Zora predates Ocarina of Time, with both a Link to the Past and Link's Awakening featuring at least one friendly Zora each, here, all of the Zora are friendly, and they will continue on as such for most of the series. The game's story is largely a retelling of the story of the Imprisoning War from A Link to the Past. The details don't line up perfectly, there are some clear retcons made here, but it's clear the developers intended for this to be a prequel to A Link to the Past. And I've mentioned in the past how the developers said as much at the time of the game's release. As time went on, however, the developers would reimagine Ocarina of Time as the linchpin of a complex forking timeline, a Zelda multiverse. At the time of release, however, it was clear that that idea had not yet entered the developers' minds. What the game does do is flesh out certain elements for series lore. It establishes a new rule for the Triforce, with characters needing to have balance within their hearts in order to possess the Triforce and make a wish. I don't think those rules really stick, however. I can't recall another Zelda game referencing it specifically. In terms of music, a number of themes which originate in Ocarina of Time have gone on to become staples of the series. That includes the Inside a House theme, The Lost Woods theme. Zora's Domain. And many others. Ocarina of Time's assets and engine would also be used to create the next game in the series, Majora's Mask. We'll dive into that game next. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, please subscribe. Please also consider sharing it with another Zelda fan. If you've subscribed already, thank you. I hope you look forward to future episodes, and I will see you next week.